Romans chapter 4, we're studying the elements of faith and while you're turning there, I just want to tell you a little story. Remember, a few weeks ago, Link Mossop gave me a, a little a, a periodical that he subscribes to. He's a former uh, Navy uh, flyer, and um, so these allusions to checklists and things like that mean something to him. And he gave me a, a, a little pamphlet that uh, I skimmed a little bit, but tonight, I just this evening, I, or this afternoon, I just sat down and read it. An interesting story about, a, a I think it's an F-8 pilot, uh, in the, during the Vietnam War, who was going through training, and he was getting prepared to be deployed on an aircraft carrier. And uh, so one of the requirements is they had to do what in the Air Force where I was, and they called them touch and goes, where you, you take off your plane, fly around, you come back and land again and take off again. And uh, he was flying a plane that uh, he had gone up to do this and done a number of them. So and the point is he had been flying this plane for a while that, that evening. And as he went up this last time, uh, the lights went off in the cockpit. And so uh, his experience as a pilot, he got as close behind the plane that had taken off in front of him, followed that plane around, and when he was able to land and go over to the taxing area, and it was a plane that had these wings that would sweep back like this. And so the instructions are they had to sweep him back when he came over near the, the, the fueling area because he had to go between some other planes. Now, it's still dark in his cockpit. So he assumes that he's not going to have to take off anymore. So he calls the tower. He tells the tower, you know, this was the problem I had. I lost my power. And uh, they check with the commanding officer. And he says, no, he still has four more of these touch-and-goes he has to complete. So they send an electrician while he's still sitting in the plane goes in head first into the cockpit and figures out how to turn some of the lights on. <laughs> so he can see out, but he can't see in. And now they tell him to take off. He gets out on the end of the runway, and he goes down the runway. He's just getting up enough speed to go up, and he realized he hadn't looked at his checklist. Now the point is, he'd just done four of these each time he looked at his checklist. So he's, it's not like, well, I haven't flown in five days. He's looked at it four times in the last two hours. And he gets up, just taking off, saying, mentally now trying to remember to go through it. This is an experienced pilot. And as he gets off the ground, begins to hit full throttle, the plane starts vibrating like this, and he knows there's something wrong but he can't see in the cockpit. He couldn't see the, the, the checklist. He's trying to do it by memory. And he gets up, and he, just as he gets up in this tank, it flips over. Because up until now, he's been figuring whether he's high enough to eject. And he says, with the way that plane ejected, he would probably compress a disc in his back. So it's not something you just did, you know, because you were uncomfortable. But now the plane's upside down, so if he ejects, he's going to be shoved down in the ground. He's able to get the plane upright. He still doesn't know what's wrong. And it's shaking terribly, and he's got enough altitude now. And as he begins to try to turn around, he calls the, the towers and says, what is wrong? And they've now got lights on him, and they say, you never pulled your wings back. So he's flying with his wings. He basically has no wings. And he's remembering stories of people in, in, in his training sessions that the plane cannot fly that way. So he brings it back around and he's asking them, to, you know, should I try to bring them out now because the force of the wind would, may well break them off. And he said there's an old principle, if it's working to some degree, don't mess with it. 
And so to make a long story short, he was able to bring it back around and land. And Link gave me that story because it highlights again this principle of what a purpose of a checklist is. A checklist is not a formula by which you earn something. A checklist is simply something that you can go through so that you're not relying on your memory. It's, it's a way of thinking so that when you get into the middle of an emergency situation, you don't have to scramble around for what do I do. You look for these basic elements. And in Romans chapter 4 are the basic elements of what's involved in faith. And so that's what we've been looking at. Let's read through Romans 4 verses 17 down through I think it's 22. As it is written, I made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did exist. In other words, he calls things into existence that never existed before. Who, contrary to hope, in hope, believed that he might become a father of many nations according to what was spoken to him, spoken by God, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his body already dead since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in, grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what God had promised, what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, as a result of what he did, it was accounted to him for righteousness, as if he were righteous. Now it is written, not for his sake alone, that was imputed to him, but also for us, that is imputed to we who believe, who raised him, who Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Now you can put the slide, first slide up. And these are the things we've already gone through. I'm not going to go through them in any degree again. But these are the basic elements. I put them in a slideshow, a PowerPoint, so that you could write them down. And the first one is that you are to locate the promise God has made to you. They'll get that up there eventually. It's to locate the promise that God has made to you. And since, and we've gone over this a number of times before, but since what faith is is simply taking God at His word, you need to know what word it is He spoke that you're taking Him at. Otherwise, it's blind faith, and blind, blind faith is not true faith, it's foolishness. So people say, well, I'm trusting God. For what? What is the promise of God that's made to you that you're believing. And it is so critical that that's the foundation because the next one, put the next one up, because the reason we can have confidence in this promise is because of the one who made the promise for two aspects. First of all, the Bible tells us that the one who made the promise cannot lie. So if he's told you he's going to do something, he's going to do it. In fact, when you study it out, you find out when he... Notice what he said to Abraham. He doesn't say, up until this point in Genesis 17, he says, I will make you. But once he makes the promise out of his mouth, from that point on, he says, as far as I'm concerned, I have made you. So in God's mind, it's a completed fact. And so it's important to know the foundation of your faith has to be in some specific promise that God has made. That's why you can have confidence in it. It's not an emotion. It's a, it's a decision. I can have confidence in, in, that God is going to do this because he made a promise to me. And the second aspect is I now know the one who made the promise. Because first of all, we know he cannot lie. So he's going to, Numbers 23, 19. So if he tells me something, he cannot lie and he will not change his mind. And the second thing is, okay, you can have somebody makes a promise to you I promise tonight to give you a million dollars. And I can intend that all I want, but at least at this point, I'm not capable of fulfilling my promise. 
So it's an empty promise. It's a sincere promise, but it's empty because I don't have the power or the ability to carry it out. But God, we see here the key, and we'll look back at this again tonight. The key is something it says in there. It says, it says in the sight of him whom he believed, even God who can raise the dead. So it's talking about what this one who made the promise is capable of doing. How capable is he of fulfilling his promise? Well, the first thing we see about him is his power is so strong, he can take something that was dead and make it alive by his words. But then it goes on to another degree and says not only can he raise the dead with his words, but he can call things into existence that never existed before. That is the power and the authority of the one who's made a promise to you, and he cannot lie. We can go home at that point, because that's really the foundation of it all. And then we began to look, the next element, go to the next point on here. Then you've got to choose to believe the promise before you see it. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become. The order is you have to believe the promise and then you see the results. Mark eleven twenty four 24 says, Therefore, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, Believe that you have received and you shall have it. So the order from Mark eleven twenty four is the same that says that when you pray, when you ask God at that point, now again, it's for something he's promised you. So you take a promise from the word of God, you go to him and you make that request, you appropriate that promise for you. And Mark, Jesus is teaching in Mark 24, and at that moment that you ask him, you must believe that it's already yours. Well, how can I believe it's already mine? Because the one who made the promise can't lie and he's able to perform it. So therefore it is a done deal. And then you shall have it. In hope against hope, he believed that in order that he might become. So you believe and then you receive. And then we saw that the believing is a choice. It's an act of your will. Faith is not an emotion where you've got to work it up. I've been in prayer meetings where you can tell people are trying to work up the emotion to believe that God's going to answer their prayers. Jesus, I don't, I don't see examples of Jesus yelling, working up his emotion when he prayed. In fact, when you see, when God just says, let there be. He doesn't huff and puff and get all, he doesn't have to get emotionally, it's the authority. When you have the authority, you don't have to yell. Our oldest child, our oldest son was in, I, remember, I still remember from kindergarten. Uh, they had a, 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 had a great kindergarten teacher, a good other teacher, but this really impressed me because at the end, near the end of the year, they had a, maybe it was a Christmas time, it was a Christmas pageant. And, of course, they're kindergartners, you know, and so they're all, I don't know what they were. I don't remember the pageant, but I remember that they were all, they were being typical kindergartners running all over the stage before it's time to start. She went over to the piano and simply hit C chord. And when she hit C chord, with all their running, they stopped and they ran over and took their places. She didn't have to say a word to them. She had enough authority with those kindergartners that she didn't have to raise her voice. She didn't have to yell. She had simply went over and played the chord that said it was time to start. And they all got into place. That impressed me. I want to figure out how to do that here. 
I wish I know what the cord was. But somehow I don't suspect it was the cord. It was the authority that she had exercised with them and how she had gotten that across to them. So the point is that you choose to believe the promise before you're going to receive it. It's an act of your will. It's not an emotion. It's not something that's worked out. There is enough evidence in here to have, I've given you enough evidence to believe that the prom- you can trust the promise. Now it's up to you to decide to do it. And now go on to the next thing. This is what we've been looking at now. The next thing is you've got to act on what you believe. And there's really two parts to that. There may be others that we've talked about. And the importance of acting on what you believe, and we looked in James chapter 2, is when you do that, you seal your faith. You actually release your faith. Something that is kind of potential inside of you becomes activated. It's like, the, it's, it's like taking the jello powder, putting it in the water where it's just all fluid, and you stick it in the refrigerator, and when it's done, it's now, it's now jello. If you, in chemistry, they have a catalyst. When you add the catalyst to the, chem, to the chemicals, it releases whatever it's supposed to do. And that's what action does. Because as long as you're only believing it and not acting on it, it's still within you. But the moment you step out on that promise, now you put all your faith in it. You put your weight on upon it. It's like Peter when he got out on the water. He was not in faith until he stepped out of the boat. And when he stepped out of that boat, he stepped out on the word come, on the promise that Jesus said that you could walk on the water. So when Jesus said come, that meant Peter could walk. But he didn't become real until he took his weight off the boat and put his weight out on the word come. It's when you put the weight of your life or of your situation out on this word and no longer on the other alternatives that you see of how you're going to get out of this mess if God doesn't come through. Because that's how our minds work. I'm trusting God, but... I'm trusting God, but in the back of my mind, I'm working on some other alternatives. It's like walking on on water. You either do it or you don't. There's no halfway in between. Because if you go halfway in between, you're going in. And that's what happens to many of us. So acting, and one of the ways to do that is to simply speak out loud. Because when we declare it with our mouth, now we're on record of what we believe. And we're no longer, we're no longer in that place, well, if God doesn't come through, nobody's going to know that's what I was believing. But when we say it, now it's out there. Now, you've got to be careful who you say it to. You don't go around, you know, you don't get on Shine Radio or you don't get on, you know, television and you start broadcasting, you know. But you've got to pick people that will agree with you. Especially if you're really in an emergency situation, you, you only tell it to people that are going to, at the level of faith that you're at or higher and will agree with you. And then know to keep their mouth shut and not ask you every five minutes how you feel. Because when they ask you how you feel, now you've got a choice to make. What do I say? Am I going to lie to them? Well, you don't have to lie. You just say, this is what I believe. You know, you, this is one thing I learned as a lawyer. Just because somebody asks you a question doesn't mean you're obligated to answer it. Because somebody says, how do you feel? Why, do you have to, why are you obligated to tell them? Just say, this is what I believe. This is what I believe. And if it's not somebody can understand it, just smile and say, fine, thank you. It is well with my soul. That's scriptural. 
That's what the woman said when her son had died. She came to the prophet. He said, how is it? It's well with my soul. Her son had just died. It's interesting. The prophet came and raised him up. All right. And act as if the promise was yours now. That was where we ended up last time. Act as if the promise is yours now. So ask yourself, what would I do if this really were so now? What would I do if this really were so now? And then do it. And again, we're not talking about crazy stuff. We're talking about taking what God said and acting as if it's really so, all right, understand this. Speaking it doesn't make it happen. Acting as if it's so doesn't make it happen, but it releases your faith that receives what God has already done. It puts you in a place to receive it. All right, we're going to move on and look at the next one. Don't put it up there yet. It's in verse 18. Who, contrary to hope, believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to what was spoken. Verse 19, excuse me. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since it was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, let me explain something to you. Some of you have translations. The New American Standard looks like it says just the opposite because it said he considers his own body now as good dead. Anybody have a translation that says that? He considers his own body. New American says that. And the difference is there's two basic sources of Greek text from which were translated into English. And there's some minor variations, and this is one of those minor variations. But I have studied these words out, and they're really saying the same thing. Now, only a lawyer could tell you that one translation says, don't look at it, and another says that look at it are really saying the same thing. But it is the truth. What they're saying is the word means literally to stare something in the face and not be moved by it. That's what he's saying. In other words, what he's saying here is that, and now you can put the next one up. Don't let contrary messages from your senses move you. And this is so important to understand. Understand what the, Paul talks about the fight of faith. You need to understand what the battle is and where it's being fought. First of all, let me tell you where the battle is located. It's located between your left ear and your right ear. In other words, it's in your mind. And here's what happens. You've studied. You've got a situation that's come up, whether it's a doctor's report or symptoms in your body or it's your, what your checkbook is telling you you don't have or whatever the situation is. And you've gone and you found a promise of God and you meditated on that promise. You know that that's yours. There's confidence that's built up in you and now you've decided to step out and act on that word. And I can tell you what will happen. The moment you step out and act on that word, your senses are going to begin to tell you it's not going to happen. A battle begins. Because first of all, the devil doesn't just step back and say, oh, they found the promise of God. What am I going to do now? They're done. I'm going to go find somebody else. Oh, no, he will oppose you. But in many cases, he doesn't even have to. Our unrenewed mind will do this. Because most of us still are so sense-oriented. By that, I mean our physical senses. We spend most of our time during the day 
conscious of what our five physical senses are telling us all the time. Your five physical senses are speaking to you right now. Some of you are telling you, you know, you're, you're, you're sleepy. Some of you are telling you you're hungry. Some of you are telling you, you know, I'm not comfortable sitting here. Some of you, your body's talking to you. And we're so used to listening to it that so many times the noise of our body drowns out what the spirit inside of us is trying to tell us. And that's one of the purposes of fasting. That's one of the purposes of meditating on the Word of God. Are things which are designed, that's why it's important to pray in the Spirit. These are all things which are are ways of stirring up and strengthening your awareness of the Spirit man that's who you really are because normally unless you do that, your body is speaking so loud to you and your mind is speaking so loud to you that it's having trouble hearing what the Spirit of God is saying. That's why I have trouble sometimes when you get people come up to me and all the time and God told me this and God told me that and God told me and I look at their lives and their lives are a mess and I realize I know that they're still dominated by their flesh and I'm having trouble having confidence that they're hearing clearly the spirit of God when their body is speaking so loudly to them they have no control over it I'm not going to go very far that way so you can relax but the point is is this Your body is talking to you. Your mind is talking to you. And they will not agree with the Word of God. So there's a battle going on. You see the Word of God. You see the promise God has made. And you made the decision. You're going to believe that Word because you're going to trust God. And now you step out on it. And now what happens is your senses are going to begin to tell you it's not happening. Because very rarely when you step out on faith does it just happen immediately. Sometimes it does. But very rarely does it happen immediately. I was thinking of the story of of a number of stories that come to me as I was thinking about this. The story of the children of Israel is a fascinating story to go through and we're not going to take the time in this teaching session to do that. But I've done it before where here's that same pattern. They've cried out to God for deliverance. God already had the deliverer, Moses, prepared. He had called him. He had prepared him. He had trained him. He was 80 years into his calling and training when they cried out, to be delivered. And God gets a hold of Moses and sends Moses back and says, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So first of all, Moses goes back to the people. Moses tells them that God God has spoken to me and he is going to deliver you. He's told me to go to Pharaoh and to deliver you. And he said, and just to show you that God really has spoken to me, he performed certain miracles that God had trained him to, had told him to perform. So there's supernatural evidence that this man is called of God. And so they're all excited. The deliverers come. God has answered our prayer and they are so excited. He goes to Pharaoh and says, God has told, commanded that you let his people go so that they can go into the wilderness and worship him. And Pharaoh's answer was not, oh, I'm, if God's told us to do that, then oh, please, you know, let's open the doors and let's, you know, we'll have a nice going away party tomorrow and just send you out. And, oh, no, no, no. Pharaoh's first response was, well, if you've got enough time to be praying and asking God to set you free, then you've got too much time on your hands. So up until now, we've provided the straw for you to make the bricks. So if you've got all this time on your hands, you're going to have to provide your own straw. And by the way, the quota is not reduced. So you're going to have to get it earlier and work later and have the same demands put on you. In other words, he increased the pressure on their senses. Why? Because there was a battle going on. Because once you take God at his word, and once you release the authority of his word, understand when you take God's promise 
and you speak that promise out with you, of your own mouth and with your heart you believe that, you have set yourself into agreement with the authority that's in God's word. It's, the authority is God's word flowing out of you. It's not your authority, it's your God's authority flowing out of you. It's like when you take your toaster or your curling iron or whatever it is you want to use that's powered by electricity and it's sitting there and it has it's not doing anything until you plug it in to the source of the power. Once you plug it into the source of the power, all that power that comes from NORAD or NORSTAR or whatever it isn't anymore, it flows through that thing and energizes that toaster, that curling iron, or that microwave, or your stove, or your dryer, or whatever it is. Now, but it's not, the power didn't come from the toaster. It came from the generators. And when you hook into God's Word... It's the same authority that created the universe. See, that's what Abraham got a hold of. He realized that the God that made the promise to me is a God that can raise the dead. And therefore, that same promise spoken out of my mouth has that same authority. But in your heart, you've got to be in agreement. And this is where people struggle. So what happens is, so once you do that, a battle starts. Because Satan understands that if you continue to stand on that word, eventually that word, he's got to bow to it. Eventually that word will work. So his whole goal is to get you to back off the word. And he can't make you do it. If he could make you do it, he wouldn't need to talk to you. He wouldn't need to use your senses. He would just stop you. Understand this. Once you come to Christ, he has no authority over you any longer unless you give it to him. And the authority that we give him is authority God gave us to control him. And so what he has to do is discourage you. But he's very good at it because he's a deceiver. And so he'll begin to talk to you. And your senses will talk to you. And the underlying message is it's not going to work. And that's what happened with the children of Israel. They got, they got mad at Moses. See, the Pharaoh wanted mad at Moses so they wouldn't be mad at him. So he got them mad at their leader that God had sent to deliver them. And the devil's used that trick ever since. And there are many stories in the Bible about this same example. There's a story in, in, in 1 Kings, uh, 1 Kings chapter, it's around 18 or 19, it's a little, excuse me, 2 Kings, a story of King Hezekiah. And he is the king of the southern nation of Judah. And the nation of Assyria has already destroyed the northern nation of Israel. Samaria and the other ten tribes to the north and already dispersed them. And now they set their sights on on Judah and Jerusalem. And so they send their their key general who was named the Rabshakeh. Sennacherib was the king. And they send the Rabshakeh and he stands outside the walls with whatever he used for a PA system there and starts talking to the guards on the walls in their native language. And the first thing he says, well, please speak in Aramaic so the general people won't understand you. And he says, no, no, I'm going to talk and I want them to hear what I have to say. And basically he goes through to undermine their confidence. And he says, says, you're going to, first of all, he says, you're going to go trust in Egypt. 
And he lists nations that have trusted in Egypt, and Egypt either failed them or Egypt has then subdued them and put them under bondage. So, so you can't trust Egypt. He says, and by the way, if you're going to say you're going to trust in your God, first of all, your God's going to be mad at you because Hezekiah tore down his high places. Well, he didn't have his theology right because the high places were Satan's, not God's. So he goes to the next level. It's like a flip chart. Do you ever notice Satan has like a flip chart? It says, you know, will you believe this one? Oh, that didn't work. Okay, let's try another one. That's not working. Okay, let's try another one. I mean, he's persistent. Let's try this one. You know, your mother-in-law doesn't like you. No, that didn't work. Okay, your husband doesn't like you. Yeah, that's beginning to work. So-and-so said something. Oh, okay, we got a live one here. He'll keep trying things until he finds something that works. He doesn't tell you a clue. He's not trying to show you the truth. But, of course, that shouldn't be shocking because Jesus said he's a liar. And the father of lies, and there is no truth in him. That means even if he wanted to tell you the truth, he's not capable of it because there's no truth in him. Why do we listen? And so he, that, then he comes and says, all right, if you think that your God's going to deliver you, he lists off all the cities that they've just conquered and says, well, he didn't deliver them. Does that sound familiar? Ever, you know, I've, I've stood in faith for something, and it's amazing because very often I'll begin to hear stories of people that tried to do the same thing and failed. Well, I've, you know, this person was believing and it didn't work for them. And those are messages sent to discourage me. But I always go to Psalm 91. Because Psalm 91 says, A thousand may fall on my side and ten thousand my right hand. It doesn't matter. What relevance is that? Because it's not coming near me. In other words, what does it have to do with what somebody else's testimony? Does it change God's word? See, this is the key thing, and you've got to get this. Faith is simply taking what God says and standing on it and not moving until you see the results because everything that comes against you is to get you to step off of it and do something else. I was sharing with somebody the other day. I was going through this principle with them, and I said, understand this. Now that you're standing on God's Word, and at you, you, some point you're going to get a good report, be careful because the tendency is once you've got a good report is now you shift your trust over to the good report. Oh, the doctor said the results are changing. And so what happens is you now get your hope up because of what the doctor says. And now I'm not standing on God's word anymore. I'm now standing out on the doctor's report and that can turn around like that. Don't let anything move you off of the promise that God has made to you. Because if you stand on it, Hebrews 10, I think it's 35, says, Throw not away your confidence, for it has a great reward attached to it. It says earlier, through faith and patience, we obtain the promises. Patience means not moving off of what God has said. I don't care what it looks like. I'm not moving because what does anything it looks like have to do with what God has said? Because that's what Abraham figured out. Abraham had a promise from God that said, as far as I'm concerned, and by the way, I'm the one that can raise the dead, and I call things into existence that never existed before with my words, not by sending angels to Home Depot or Lowe's, but I simply speak and things come into existence. That's the power that I have. And I've said to you, 
you're going to be the father of many. You're going to have a child. Now, see, here's the evidence, the, the sense evidence that Abraham had. Because it says he was about 100 years old. That means his reproductive organs had pretty well dried up. He was, not, he was past the childbearing age. And he says, and the dead, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. She would, had been barren and had never been able to have children. And now she was, she was almost 90. So she was too old and had been barren all along. Three strikes against them. And understand, these are things that they look at. I mean, you know, every time he got dressed and undressed, he's looking at his body realizing, you know, it's not what I used to be. And then she's not either. And that's there all the time. So very often, the sense, evidence that's telling you it's not going to work is staring you in the face all the time in your senses, telling you it's not going to work. It's not working. It didn't work yesterday. It's not working. Nothing looks any different today. But see, here's what Abraham understood. And I'm going through this one day and meditating on this, and all of a sudden, it hit me. The Spirit of God asked me this question. Abraham realized this when he looked at his body and he looked at her body and the ages of their body and he took the promise God had made. God said, I who am able to raise the dead and have the power to call things into existence that have never existed before, I've said to you, here's my word, you're going to have a child, a son, and through that son, you're going to be the father of many nations. And over here, their body's telling us, no way, Jose, it's too late. It's all over with. It's done. That's not going to happen. And every day they get up, their body tells them the same thing. Every day when they go to bed, their bodies tell them the same thing. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. What's different today than it was yesterday? But let me ask you a question. If God's able to raise the dead, and God has enough power in His words to call things into existence, remember where the universe came from? He called it into existence. What in the world does the condition of their bodies have to do with God's ability to fulfill His promise? What is the condition of their body an obstacle to a God who has absolute power? Where did the body come from to begin with? How did Adam's body get here? God took it out of the dust of the earth and breathed his own life into it. See, we forget who this God is who's made these promises to you. But all this stuff we look at, screaming and yelling at us, telling us it can't work, but that's based on our own natural experience. But God's not limited by nature, is he? That's why it's super natural super means above or beyond so his ability is above and beyond nature not only that Jesus says in in um, Revelation chapter 1 I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end I was dead and now I'm alive and I've got in my hands the keys of death hell and the grave. Death couldn't hold him in the place of death when God spoke his word 
to bring him alive. What is your problem to God? See, we tend to think in natural terms. And so that's what Abraham got a hold of. So don't let contrary messages from your senses move you. I'll talk to them. So you've got to talk because your, 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 your senses are talking to you. You've got to talk back to them. You've got to speak God's word to yourself. You've got to meditate on God's word. See, it's, it is not enough to simply find a promise, say, okay, I choose to believe that promise, and then step out and act on it. You've got to also put it down in your heart because it's not believing it in your head. It's believing it in your heart, and there's a world of difference. You can believe one thing in your heart and a totally different thing in your head. I found myself in emergency situations and my mind went south on me. Ever have your mind just turned to jello on you? It just like that. But down in here, there was a confidence that God was going to get us through it. I didn't know how. I didn't know when. But I knew it was going to be okay. That was in here. It wasn't up here. It wasn't up here. But I told you last week the story of when I got those hives and took those pills, thinking I was in faith. That was what I believed up here, but I hadn't put it down in here yet. If you believe in your heart, if you believe in your heart and not doubt in your heart. So do not let contrary messages from your senses move you. And that is a constant battle. You have to just realize this is, but understand what your senses are telling you are completely irrelevant to what God has said. What do they have to do with it? What do your senses have to do with God's promises? Let me ask you this question. Did you ever get up some morning and not feel saved? Am I the only one that's ever had that happen? You all, you all get up feeling sanctified and saved and holy and, you know, like you could go out and walk on water or, you know, just, you know, just, you just feel so wonderful every time you get up. I, sometimes I wake up and I, you know, I don't feel anything. There are some days where not feeling anything would be good. You just get up and I don't feel saved. I don't, you know, just, and, but that, does that mean I'm not? What do your senses have to do with it? How many of you actually have seen heaven? I mean, with your natural eyes. You've actually seen it. But are you going there? Well, how do you know you're going there? Because you've taken what God said and you believe it. You've taken what God said. This is no different than that. So you do not let contrary messages from your senses move you. Now, here are a couple of things that you need to do about it. First of all, do not allow doubt to get in your heart. Doubt is like, is the opposite of faith. Doubt is like a seed and it can come to you very subtly and it comes to your mind and it's the same way it came into the Garden of Eden with questions. Has God said, can I trust the Word? We talked about that on Sunday mornings when we were back and studied some of the things we studied about faith on Sunday mornings. We talked about, we went through the Garden of Eden scenario. We saw how, how Satan came to her and how he tried to distract her and get her to question, first of all, God's Word. And then once she began to question God's Word, the next thing was to question God's heart, which goes back to those other two things we just looked at, which is that, that knowing, first of all, what God said, and then second, knowing the God that said it. He got her to question what God said, and then once she was willing to question what God said, now he went after what he was really after, questioning God's motive, so that she decided she couldn't trust him 
completely. Because once you come to the place where you're not sure you can trust him, you've unplugged from your source of power. You've unplugged from your source of security and your strength, and now you're having to rely on your own. And that can be very scary at times. So your source, that's where the secret place is. The secret place of the Most High is not a secret. I'll say that again. The secret place of the Most High in Psalm 91 really isn't a secret. It's only secret in the place that not a lot of people find it. They don't go there. But it's putting your dependence upon Him. It's putting your reliance upon Him. So do not let contrary messages from your senses move you. And there again, Mark eleven twenty three says, Whatsoever things you, uh, uh, says, if, therefore, if you shall say unto this mountain, be thou taken up and cast in the sea. In other words, you exercise your faith with your words, but do not doubt where? In your heart. Do not allow doubt in your heart. So, well, Pastor, that's hard. It may be hard, but you can do that. You can control what goes into your mind. In fact, you've got a responsibility to control what goes into your mind. I used to teach a course in school of ministry called Renewing the Mind, and I may do that on a Wednesday night. I may just do that sometime and just go through that course because it was very practical. And, and, and I had an exercise I took people through because in order, to con- in order to control your mind, you've got to know where it is. Some of you don't know where your mind is. You've got to know how it functions. So we tend time going back over the mind and looking at how it functions, what its role is, and how because your mind plays a role in how you operate as a complete human being. It, it works between your spirit and, and, your, and your soul. It connects your spirit and your soul together. And your, so your soul, it means your soul, excuse me, collects your, your spirit and your body together, and your mind is a part of that soul. So everything filters through your mind. Whatever's going into your heart has to go through your mind. Whatever comes out of your heart has to come out of your mind. So your mind is a gateway that controls what goes into you and what goes out of you. So it's very important that you learn to control your thoughts, but you can't control your thoughts if you don't recognize them. Most of the time you're having thoughts, you don't even know you're having thoughts. <laughs> Ladies, have you ever spoken to your husband or your, or your, or your, uh, your, your fiancé and say, Honey, what are you thinking? And he gives you this look like, what am I thinking? Nothing. <laughs> See, ladies, we're capable of thinking nothing. <laughs> and that's a foreign concept to women, so they're figuring we're holding back on them. When in reality, we are thinking things that are just not that important to really notice. You know, we're just letting, you know, stuff run through our mind. You know, it's not that important. And, 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 and so, uh, but you can recognize what you thought, think. And you must learn to recognize your thoughts so you can recognize these thoughts that are coming to you that are seeds, they're doubts that are being to be planted in your heart. And they often come with questions. Can I, can I really trust him? Is that really so? Because that's how Satan works. He works by questions and, and, and questioning things. So if you... If you, you must uh, not allow doubt in your heart. Go with me to James chapter 1.
verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, and we'll see in a minute that it applies to anything, not just wisdom, let him ask of God, so it's talking about things that we ask God for, who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. So God wants to give you what you're asking for. I'm again assuming it's his word. And it will be given him. But here's the condition. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So that when we allow doubt in, it creates an instability in us. So remember I said the key is to make sure that whatever happens, you continue to stand on that promise of God. And the battle that you're now in, whatever comes against you, if you understand this, it will hold you in good stead. Whatever comes after you is designed to do one thing, is to get you off that word. As long as you'll stay... I've told you this before, but I have this mental picture. I'm convinced that if somehow I could get my foot on Satan's neck and just lean on it with the authority and power of God, with every breath left in him, he would tell me he's winning. To tell me, I, you, he, he said, you can't beat me, you can't beat me, you can't beat me, even while I've got my foot on his neck. Why? Because he's got to convince me to take my foot off so that he can win. Understand, Christ won the victory for you. He has defeated Satan. First John says, For this reason was the Son of God manifest, that he might destroy the works of the evil one. Colossians chapter 1 says, He dis- utterly destroyed principalities and powers and made a public show of them openly. Well, the public show wasn't in the streets of Jerusalem. The public show was in the center of hell. So Jesus has defeated him at the cross and at the resurrection from the dead. He defeated Satan's power and authority. But you've got to walk that victory out. And that's what your faith does. This is why 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, For we walk by faith and not by our senses, by sight. We live our life by faith. What's faith? It's taking God at His word. I don't care what it looks like, God said this. I don't care what it looks like, God said this. I don't care what it looks like, God said this. I don't care what it looks like, God said this. And and perhaps the greatest story of this, and I've, I've had experiences like this, not literally to this degree, but I've had situations where there was no possible way out of something. I had a case... Where, where, where because of a mistake that I made, it was an inadvertent mistake, my client was about to lose $100,000. And I had a hearing. And my, the, the lawyer that worked under me had been this judge's clerk, and he said he never reconsiders these things. And I went and prayed. I said, God, what do I do? I went and told my boss, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And what I sensed him doing is there's a procedure where you could ask the judge to change his mind. And my mind said, he's not going to do that. And then I got talking to this lawyer that worked with me who had been his clerk. He says, all the years I worked as his clerk, he's never done that before. But I decided to follow what was in here. So I prepared all the papers. I did all the research. I did all the work. I filed the papers. And I'll never forget, it was a Friday afternoon. I got a phone call from the judge's secretary saying, Monday morning he wants to have a hearing on the petition you filed. Well, that's good news. That means there's enough in there that he wants to talk about it. So we get on this conference call 
and my the lawyer that works with me, we're in this in, we're in a in, a, in an office, and he's telling me before he's he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. He, that's a voice in my ear. He's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. He's not. All I know is, thank you, but I'm going with what's in here. I don't know how it's going to happen. I just know I'm going to trust God. I believe this is what God told me to do. I'm going to trust Him. We get into this hearing, and to make a very long story short, the judge starts asking some questions, and he finally turns to me and he said, "John, let me ask you a question. Did you make a mistake?" Now, lawyers don't like to admit they made mistakes. And I had to swallow my pride a little bit and said, yes, Your Honor. He said, okay. He said, well, this provision of the code allows you to make this change. If He starts arguing my case. He reversed himself. Never done it before. To my knowledge, never did it afterwards. Impossible, but with my God, nothing's impossible. Now, I'll close with this story because it's a story we're all familiar with. In Mark chapter 5 is the story of a man that came to Jesus. His daughter was dying. And he comes to him and says, Master, my daughter's at the point of death. Jesus said, I'll come and heal her. And on the way to Jairus' house, this woman with an issue of blood, without asking permission, she's illegally in public because she has an issue of blood, crawls up behind him and touches this garment, and he stops and ministers to her. When he's finished with this ministering and talking about all this, and they're about ready to start again. Now remember, he had a word from Jesus. He had a word from God. I will come and heal your daughter. That was the word he had from Jesus. Now they're on their way. Get interrupted. That's okay, because Jesus is still coming to do what he said. As they're starting out again, he recognizes coming through the crowd one of his servants pushing his way through the crowd, and he comes up to his master with this horrible look on his face and says, Master, I'm sorry, but don't trouble the Lord any longer. It's too late. And then these words, which must have rung in his ears, your daughter's dead. In all of our experience, in all of Jairus' experience, in all of our natural experiences, as long as someone still is breathing, there's hope. But when that last breath is gone and it's clear they're not getting it back and it's over and there's been enough time to go from his house to where they were and the message is your daughter's dead with all natural understanding that ends this episode. But what Jesus did then to me is so, insight, so critical for us to understand how faith works. Because Jesus turns around, and although it doesn't say this literally, I've said this before, I imagine he grabbed Jairus by the robes, I can just see this, and gets in his face and says, fear not. In other words, don't doubt. Only believe. In other words, he's saying, look, I don't care the report you just heard. He's not denying it. We talked last week about that. Don't deny the contrary evidence. It may well be true, but there's a higher authority working here, the authority that can raise the dead and call things into existence. And Jesus says to Jairus, I don't, basically, I don't care what the report is. Fear not. Oh, in other words, don't get off the promise I made to you. In other words, what does this have to do with what I said I was going to do? What does it have to do? What does it matter that she's dead? 
What's her dying got to do with whether I'm going to get her well or not? With my fulfilling my promise. Because we look at the evidence and say, well, I don't think it can happen now. But it's God that made the promise. There's nothing that's even hard for him. But the critical thing that had to happen there, the battle was not what Jesus was going to do, it's what Jairus was going to do. So Jesus has to get a hold of him. And that word only is so critical because he's saying only believe. In other words, do not let doubt in. Now that's hard to do when you've just been told your daughter's dead. But that's the choice he had to make. And because he chose to continue to stand on and trust what God said to him in spite of what the evidence was to his senses, God was now able to complete his promise and what he said. In a course on blood covenant, I used to teach, and I'll end with this. I taught this principle. The Old Testament has a principle that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, a truth is established, which was basically a rule that they used for trials. That if you got two witnesses to agree to something, that was enough to be considered the truth. You could rebut it, but that was given a presumption that was the truth. When God makes a promise, that's one witness. That's God's witness. Your senses are screaming and yelling at you saying it's never going to happen. That's another witness. They disagree with each other. You are the deciding witness. God's word is true whether you agree with it or not. But it only becomes true for you when you agree with God's word and not with what your senses tell you. You now set yourself in agreement with God and you have decided for yourself that that's truth for you. So whatever's contrary to that now has no authority because you've put yourself into agreement with the authority of God. On the other hand, if you allow your senses to move you and you begin to look, see, that's what happens. We look at them, we think about them, we talk about them. Oh, if you knew how I feel. Oh, if you know what's going on at work. Oh, they're laying people off left and right. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. And we, you understand how faith comes? Faith comes by hearing. Either faith comes in God's Word by hearing God's Word, or faith comes in what your senses tell you by hearing what your senses tell you, and the person you hear it from the most is you. You're either building faith in what God has said about it or faith in what your senses say. And whichever one you end up agreeing with will become a reality in your life. It's your choice. It's not God's will. It's your choice. I get so troubled when I read. Oh, i got to end. I get so troubled when I read theologians and people that I respect in so many other ways, but they'll have an attitude that basically whatever's happening in your life must be God's will. And we don't have time to go through and, and do an analysis of it and take that apart. So you've got to learn to just kind of accept it. 
and that totally dismisses the devil as if he is not doing anything or operating anywhere. It totally makes our senses and and our mind have equal value with what God says. And I just think they don't understand. It sounds good and it feels good, but it's very much like Eastern mysticism and religions. You just accept what's happening, and, you, and there's a certain sense of, sense of satisfaction and submission when you do that. But the Word of God doesn't teach that. Now, there's something God wants you to submit to, like His will, like His commandments. You know, love one another. We've heard that one, haven't we? Forgive. Those things He wants us to submit to. But the circumstances that happen in your life, find out what God says about them. And then that's what His will is. But then you choose, you choose, you decide. It's an act of your will which one of those you're going to believe. The problem is we're so used to listening to and giving in to our senses that it takes a concerted effort to believe God's Word when your senses are telling you something else. But you can develop that habit. The more you do it, the easier it gets. The more you do it, the easier it gets. The more you do it, the easier it gets. And when you begin to see results, now it gets easier and easier and easier. And you come to the place, as Paul got to, you look at your senses and say, ah, that's what they, I don't even pay attention to them. And that's where we begin to really mature in faith.